Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that were so successful off-Broadway, they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is... A literal child, so I am going to be on my best foul mouth behavior. I will. This might be the only episode in the history of Broadway Breakdown that doesn't have an explicit tag next to it. Uh, he has his own podcast called Backstage Babble. He is quite young, but he's extraordinarily knowledgeable. He reminds me of me four years ago when I was his age. Please welcome to the podcast, Charles Kirsch. Hi, Charles. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's I love your podcast, so I'm I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much. I cannot control which episodes of the podcast you listen to charles but i can control what words i don't say today in front of you so i'm gonna try to work on that um but i want to apologize to your parents now for possibly corrupting you to the awfulness of the world and my crazy crazy brain no uh charles how old are you exactly at this point in time i'm 15 years old now Okay. Oh, you're not that innocent. I, I when I was your age, I saw Light no, of the Piazza no. and Pillow Man. So you're, you're, oh, you're basically wow. an adult at this point. Right. I don't think I would be up for seeing the Pillow Man. <laughs> you're not up for the Pillow Man. That's not your. That's not your cup of tea. No. No. But yeah. yeah. Um, how did you get into theater? What was your sort of gateway? And also, apologies, everyone, if you hear any crunching. I am indeed eating. Uh, once again, this is Broadway Breakdown, and sometimes we do ASMR with my eating. But Charles, how did you get into theater? How what what was your gateway? I got into theater seeing uh, the revival of On the Town in 2014 when I was seven years old. At that point, and I had seen other shows before that. It it wasn't my first Broadway show, but it was the one that made me fall in love and want to learn as much as I can as much as I could about the golden age of Broadway which that show is from and arguably Once Upon a Mattress is fun is from too 
I wouldn't say arguably, it's very much part of the golden age, which, and that is indeed the musical we're talking about today, is it not? Right. Yeah. It is, it is. Yeah. Great it's not really a spoiler if it's in the title, but yeah, Once Upon a Mattress, definitely golden age. I think golden age kind of goes until 64. The 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 idea is around fiddler mame is when it ended but and mattress is 59 so yeah we're we're still we're still deep in there what is your history with once upon a mattress how how did you know about it how'd you get into it have you ever done it before have you seen it before I saw the off-Broadway revival they did at, I believe, the Transport Group with Jackie Hoffman and Lip Sinka, and I fell in love with it there because that was such a fun and campy production and very smart and funny. And I have learned more about it doing research for this for this episode, and I've gotten the chance to watch the 1960s Carol Burnett TV version, and I knew the cast album beforehand, and I knew that production, but now I feel like I know a lot more about it. How? How was the transport production? What was that like? I didn't see that one. Oh, yeah. I actually liked it a lot. I think one of the great things about Once Upon a Mattress is that it can be funny with so many different types of performers in the two leads. Jackie Hoffman is, of course, much older than Carol Burnett was when she did it, and even older than Tracy Ullman was when she did it. But but she made it funny in a different way, and it sort of introduced me to almost like a new style of humor that I hadn't seen as much theater that fell into before. So that's part of the reason I have an attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, when you talk about the humor, what what, what do you mean? Like um, humor, what was, what kind of theatrical humor were you used to before you saw Once Upon a Mattress? And then how did that shift for you after seeing Jackie Hoffman and Lip Synca? <laughs> Right. Well, I was used to a more sort of straightforward, less kind of campy humor, but that I was saying that introduced me to the Charles Bush style of of comedy more rather than the straight, more straightforward, typically golden age style that I would say even the original production falls a little bit more into that. Whereas doing it with Jackie Hoffman lip sync, it becomes a different kind of experience. Absolutely. Do you enjoy Charles Bush? Yes, I do. I know Charles Bush pretty well personally as well, and and I love to see his plays whenever I can. Mm. I, I, I'm assuming you've seen at least one of his films. Yes, I actually haven't. I haven't seen the two films that you have not seen. Die, mommy, die. No, I haven't. But I'm eager to. So you absolutely should. I'm literally looking at my DVD of it right now. Uh, <laughs> it's just, Charles is uh, a genius, and the, his line oh. delivery is so good. He has a one of my all time favorite line deliveries, which is. How do, uh, who are you, Tony Parker? You've slipped into my life as easily as vermouth into a glass of gin. Quickly and just a bit too smooth. <laughs> Absolute genius. That's a very astute observation to go from Lip Sync to Charles Bush. You are a very smart 15-year-old Charles Kirsch. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great impression. It sounded just like it. <laughs> Thank you. Did, uh, do your contemporaries, do the other children of the world know who Charles Bush is? Do they know who Lip Sinka is? Um, not any that I've met yet, but but I know that there are some in probably in other states, even in other countries who who share the same interests. Are you trying to teach your your contemporaries about them? Do you like go to school every day and you're like, so guys, I need you to start reading the Taylor the Allergist's wife. And everyone's <laughs> like, fine, I guess. <laughs> right, right. I don't do as much of that. I have found one or two friends who share the same interest of seeing theater, but mm-hmm. not quite as old what's the word i'm looking for not quite as much classic musicals but old school stuff yeah right right yeah there are certain words that now people think of as sort of derogatory words because of you know i guess societal 
connotations. I don't look at old as a slur. You are aged. Yeah. It is fine. It is a <laughs> fact, but it's a matter of just what you do with your time. My grandmother is 98, about to turn 99. She's currently living more life than most 30 year olds I know. So, <laughs> but, and she'd be the first person to say, I'm old. So, with Once Upon a Mattress, let me now tell the listeners my history with this show. I saw the now considered ill fated. 1996 production with one Sarah Jessica Parker. I knew nothing about the show. I think this at this point, this might have been like my fifth or sixth Broadway show. And I did not really know who she was. And I had seen her in First Wives Club because for some reason I saw that movie in theaters at the age of five. And I really loved it. I was six. I didn't know any better. And I just remember really loving the music, the story. I thought it was very funny. I got the cast album. I listen to it still sometimes. I've got a nostalgic connection to it, uh, even though with age and more experience and more exposure to Carol Burnett and other versions of the show, I can recognize what makes Sarah Jessica Parker not right for the role. And we'll discuss that further. But I do have a connection. I think it's a very well arranged cast recording. And SJP definitely gives it the old college tries. You cannot blame a girl for giving it her all. And her all is not bad. It's just not the right fit uh which we've seen before in the past i think sometimes it's a little it's different sometimes it's not just good or bad sometimes it's good but not appropriate or it's you know bad but in the right space and it's a very those are very tricky waters to navigate uh so and then i'm pretty sure i didn't really see any other versions of once upon a mattress till i was a teenager when the abc tv movie came out and it gets done at summer camps all the time. So of course I saw it at everyone have a sip of your beverage stage dramatic performing arts center. <laughs> and I haven't seen it since it hasn't been on Broadway since SJP. There was just the transport production. There's always been talk of someone coming to do it on Broadway and it never materializes. Uh, and I, I used to wonder why, but I will say upon revisiting the show, much as I think it's very delightful, I can understand why there hasn't been another Broadway revival. Uh, but we'll get into that as we discuss the material a bit more. Uh, Charles, for those who don't know Once Upon a Mattress, for the uncultured <laughs> of the podcast, uh, what is Once Upon a Mattress? Who is she? What's she about? I would say uh, Once Upon a Mattress is about a sort of buffoonish prince named Prince Dauntless who lives in a kingdom with his very overbearing mother, Queen Agravain, and his father, the king, who's been rendered mute by a spell that gets broken at the end of the play. Uh, maybe that's a spoiler alert, I'm not sure. But Spoiler alert for a 60-plus-year-old musical, everybody. <laughs> right, right. And Queen Agravain, his mother, is leading the search to find him a princess, find him someone to marry. And they keep rejecting candidates as she subjects them to a series of basically impossible tests. I know at the beginning, we see them questioning a candidate for the job who, I can't remember the exact relationship, but it's something like a blacksmith's sister's yeah, it's, middle name, something Yeah, like they're that. quizzing her on intellect and history. And she aces everything until they get to the, they, they do one more question. She aces everything. The queen's like one more. And she pulls like this really random card out. And it's, it it depends on which version of the, there are two versions of the script. And the one I like the most is I think the original, which is what you're referring to, which is when they, they tell the tale of like a knight 
who slayed a such and such. And they said, like, what is the name of the sister-in-law of the blacksmith who made the sword? And everyone's like, excuse me. It's it's (laughs) it's like um Paul Revere on his horse, the British are coming, the British are coming. And it's like, okay, so what was the name of the nephew of the man who owned the stable that was rented out to the man who then sold the horse to Paul Revere? It's like six degrees of separation that no one would ever know. Although actually the princess does almost get it right. I remember she says Ada and it's Ida or something like that, at least in the in the TV version. And so that- the TV version they give her a little more dignity. I think I think in the stage version, she fully blows it. And oh. yeah, the rev- the revival, I wanna say it was something along the lines of like it might have been like a math problem. I can't remember what, but yeah, usually on stage it's just like she can't get it at all so i'm glad for national broadcast they're like let's give her a little bit of dignity let's have her get close to it (laughs) right right and so that is essentially the overarching plot of the show then princess winifred shows up putting her hands and climbing over the castle wall having swam the moat which there are a lot of references to they love to talk about how she swam the moat but how how did we get princess winifred who found her we get her from prince harry is harry sir, sir harry sir harry sir harry yeah. <laughs> right prince because harry. there's a rule in the kingdom what's the rule in the kingdom right. the rule in the kingdom is that none of the other maidens can get married until prince dauntless finds a wife and that Fine. proves a problem for sir harry and lady larkin because uh right. they have a bun in the oven and that's a big <laughs> no-no so they got to find a princess soon Yes, so they can get married and, and not have a kid out of wedlock. And there's some discussion, I know, in some of the versions of Lady Larkin maybe running away, but then, of course, Sir Harry doesn't want her to. And so he offers to go out and find a princess, and, and he finds Winifred. Mm-hmm. And they subject her similarly to a lot of tests. Finally, of course, the test that everyone knows is the princess and the pea, which she passes. She can't fall asleep and once they find out she passes it and she's finally qualified to become his princess and everything sort of returns to happiness then we find out that they've sort of rigged the test by putting a lot more sharp and uncomfortable objects underneath the mattresses than just the pee but then at the very final moment of the show they take away all the sharp objects except for the pee and they she still can't fall asleep until they take that away so it's really like she would have passed even Mm -hmm. if they hadn't rigged it yeah it's 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 fun um the whole point of winifred and we'll do a whole dissertation on her is you know they they open the show with this very light ballad many moons ago right and there's the there's the theme of the show which is um a princess is a delicate thing you know we all think of princesses as you know snow white cinderella and the whole point of winifred circa 1959 so, you know, we're coming back into the Disney princess stuff. I think like that's the year that Sleeping Beauty was coming out is she shows up her Carol Burnett is and all and she's loud. She's messy. She swam the moat. She's not very graceful, but she claims, you know, to be a princess, a tried and true princess. And so they test her on her sensitivity. That's the that's the test that the queen decides to do for Winifred is her sensitivity. So they do the whole uh, mattress thing and yeah the fact that she still passes once the once everything's taken out but there's still a p there proves that she truly is a genuine princess and it challenges our norms yes. that's what this show does all the time very deep show very deep show. <laughs> of course you could say ahead of its time um 
Yeah, ahead of its time, before its time, of its time. It's everywhere and nowhere all at once. It's everything <laughs> everywhere all at once. Right. Um, what is your favorite song in this show? My favorite song in this show, I know this isn't the most creative answer, but it's probably Shy. I will say one thing about Shy, which is, of course, Winifred's big I Am song at the beginning of the show. And I think one of the best I Am songs in the sort of musical theater canon. One of, do you agree? Do you think? Oh, I was going to say, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And one of the interesting things is when I watched the Carol Burnett version, what stuck out to me was, of course, how funny it was, but it made me think this song sort of performs itself and the joke is very much in the lyrics and it can always be done well. So I was expecting when I saw Sarah Jessica Parker and then Tracy Ullman that they would do it equally well because of how good the song is. But in fact, that's really not true. Carol Burnett just makes it look very easy mm-hmm. and it is a harder song to pull off than it seems when you're watching her do it. But that is, of course, the talent of a great actress like she is, is to make everything look easy. Mm-hmm. Well, a truly great performance, you do not see the work. And it, it should come off very natural. And it takes so much work to make something look so effortless. Um, Carol Burnett very naturally had, you know, this big, big voice. Something that Sarah Jessica Parker never really had. Sarah Jessica Parker has a very pleasant voice. Um, she hadn't really... She she went into How to Succeed in Business for like a second with Matthew Broderick, <laughs> but she hadn't like led a musical musical probably since Annie. Right. So she was yeah, so she wasn't like really at the top of her musical theater game. Um and so she, you know you really just need like the big, big voice. Like you would need a Bonnie Milligan, you would need a Sun Foster, someone with a really brassy belt, because the whole thing was shy musically. And it's so interesting, like that that's such the big number of the show that so many people love because it's the one song that actually wasn't written for the show. It was added. Um, it was written. And then as they were writing the show, they're like, oh, that that song we have shy. We should put that in there. Um, <laughs> did you did you know that? I didn't know that until just now. Yeah. Uh, have you started to read Mary Rogers's memoir shy? Yes, I have. I have read Mary Rogers' memoir shy. I guess I forgot that. Mm. <laughs> that detail. Is, is that well, where that came from? That's, that's where I that's where I found the information. I I. I have I've currently put that book on pause just because I've had to do a lot of other stuff. Oh yeah. Um, I but I made sure that I read through the Once Upon a Mattress section for information for this podcast because I am a researcher. But <laughs> I mean the you do you know where the show uh originated, where they where they started writing it? Yes, they started it at Camp Tamament, I think that's how you say it, which was this camp that a lot of musical theater writers went to. I know it's in Act One. It's mm-hmm. It was sort of a breeding ground for a lot of writers, including Mary Rogers and Marshall Bearer, who who wrote it there. Exactly. Um, a lot of other talented writers were there. Uh, Bach and Harnick, I think, met there, and then a lot of choreographers and actors. And the way that the writing sort of went was it was an, it was an adult summer camp, essentially. And it was done in cycles of, I think, maybe two weeks, like one or two weeks was they, there were they would re- they would recycle every like one to two weeks new adult campers and there was always a review that had to be done at the end of every week and it was sketches and songs whatever but it always had to be original stuff and sometimes they went well sometimes they didn't and then by the end of the the summer i believe there was like best of there was a best of presentation and then sometimes an original musical and uh bearer had had success i believe already with a musical version of 
Yeah, he had a he had a really big success the previous summer writing a musical comedy version of The Emperor's New Clothes. And he wanted to do the same thing with Princess and the Pea, but do it as sort of like a burlesque vehicle for Nancy Walker. Nancy Walker is a name I'm assuming you know, Mr. Golden Age. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love Nancy or I love Joe Raimi. That's one of my favorite shows. So. Of course you would go to Do Raimi and not <laughs> on the town. You just had to go the alternate route, didn't you, Charles? <laughs> right, right. Well, so who is Nancy Walker? Tell the children. Nancy Walker is a great comedy musical theater actress. Um, she was in Do Remy. She was in High Button Shoes. Is that right? Um, or Look Mind. Best Forward. I think Best Foot Forward is the one. Is right. And Look, there was a show called Look Mind Dancing that she was in uh-huh. too. And Do Remy. And then most people know her from being Rhoda's mother on Rhoda and on the Mary Tyler Moore show. So she, mm-hmm. she's a great comedian. She's the original I Can Cook too from On the Town. Uh, she's also... For my fellow adult homosexuals out there, she is <laughs> Sophia Petrullo's sister on um, Golden Girls. I think, yeah, sister. Sister or childhood friend, mm-hmm. one of the two. But I'm pretty sure it's sister. She's this very, very funny woman. And she was, um, I wouldn't say she was at the height of her fame. She was sort of in a lull between highs because she had done On the Town, which made her uh, very well known. And she had done a whole string of other things that were solid hits if not like huge hits and it was this this ended up being i think the same year as doremi or doremi might have been the year the next year and that sort of one one yeah i think doremi was the following year um no it absolutely was the following year because the year of once upon a mattress the tonys were sounded music fiorella once upon a mattress take me along and a little known musical called gypsy uh, that Tony season is actually really incredible when you think about the best musical nominees. And we'll talk about why with the optics of who wrote all these musicals, because it's all very mixed together in terms of family, friends, uh, enemies and lovers. Right. Uh, right. But so Mary Rogers, daughter of Richard Rogers, ever heard of him, people? <laughs> he might have he written a musical I like. Uh, she yes. she went to uh, Tanament. Yeah, it's called Tanament because she was trying to cut her teeth as a composer. She'd gotten a lot of TV work. She was sort of always getting booking jobs, doing this, these one-off specials and writing sort of songs that no one cared about and making a little bit of money doing children's albums or whatever. And she was going through a divorce and so needed someplace to go, someplace to escape. So she brought her kids and, and uh, you know, spent the whole summer writing and where she met Marshall Bearer, who she was very much in love with unfortunately marshall was of the homosexual persuasion didn't stop him from trying to woo her anyway and when she realized that he was homosexual and he tried to marry her she was like marshall you're gay and he's like so and she's like i can't and she's like i can't marry a gay guy a second time right (laughs) the first one didn't end well as it did not and i believe even her father when she brought it up to her father her father's like you why would you do that again (laughs) he's like this he's like stop doing this yourself he she will say her father was not the best of fathers but when it came to the big stuff like you know don't marry a man who's gonna make you miserable he was he was right and very good at it um but so because they couldn't uh, they wanted nancy walker to do this idea of the princess and the pea the idea was sort of if they could maybe workshop it at the camp they could pitch it to nancy walker's representation of having her take it to broadway and i don't know what exactly what happened uh at first with the camp stuff because that's who they wanted maybe because it was oh maybe because it was like tanament her representation was like she's not going out to some adult summer camp to do <laughs> right. a musical she does broadway or nothing 
So they kind of had to pull it all together last minute with the talent that they had. And, you know, the part of the reason why there's so many roles and like subplots in Once Upon a Mattress is because they had to include like nine principal roles for the <laughs> for the staff comedians. And like, OK, so we got the princess. We got the prince. Uh, let's get him an overbearing mother. Uh, we've we need a king. And the actor we have who plays the king is a really good mind, but he's he's a very good like clown, but he can't really memorize a lot of lines. So I don't know. Let's make him a mute. And uh, we got a dancer, so let's make him a minstrel. And and uh, we need a we need a female, so Larkin and Harry, like all the, like so. There's so many plots in Once Upon a Mattress, and they all get resolved pretty quickly. You doesn't right. feel that way because it's a two hour yeah. musical, but <laughs> until you realize like we spend five minutes on each plot line every ten to fifteen minutes. So you look back, and you're like, oh, the Lady Larkin Sir Harry plot line is really just fifteen minutes. Uh, the minstrel stuff is fifteen minutes. Uh, Winifred and and Donless, that's about twenty five. That's <laughs> that's our musical. It does, there are there are many ways in which it feels like a sitcom, and that is definitely one of them. The idea of like the A, B, and C plots finding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very it is very situation comedy. Uh, which is that was sort of the whole point of the show was they were like, let's take this fairy tale everyone knows and everyone thinks is, you know, lofty and beautiful. And let's just make it absurd. <laughs> and so it's very broad humor. And as I mentioned, Shy was written uh, before they ever wrote Once Upon a Mattress. It was a song that they wrote that Marshall and Mary wrote for the like weekly reviews. And it got denied. Everyone was like, no, the song's no good. And when they wrote princess in the p it wasn't included in the camp version either because the actress they had playing winifred wasn't a singer she was a dancer and a comedian so everyone else sang but winifred and then and it was called princess in the p at the time but the reception was so good that they got um some broadway producers came up to sort of check it out and the only people who bit were the eckharts do you know who the eckharts were yes famous costume designers turned producers and scenic designers as well yeah Yes. Yes. Uh, I think this was their first show as producers. Um, right. I remember that. They had had success at that point as designers. Uh, their big break as Broadway designers was with The Golden Apple, which is a musical we will cover on this podcast soon. I think I'm recording that tomorrow, actually. I should probably check my schedule. <laughs> I, I've got like four recordings coming up, and I don't know which one is which. So I should probably <laughs> learn so I can brush up on that show. Uh, but yeah, the Eckhart's husband and wife team, they were the only ones who came up and then also like followed through on wanting to do it. There was another producer who wanted it and he like gave them, uh, an exclusive contract and which they stupidly signed. But when the Eckhart's came on, he was like, oh, he's like, oh, I have no money or connections. Go with the Eckhart's. And right. so they did. And the Eckhart's were able to bring on George Abbott because they had worked with him, I think on, uh, what was the show they worked on with him before? Because they would eventually work with him on Fiorello, but I feel like they did another show with him before this, and I can't remember what it was. And basically, George Abbott said to them, I don't like this show. <laughs> He's like, but I don't have anything going on right now. And if you can finish writing this show, he's like, if, he gave them a timeline. I don't, do you remember this from the memoir? Yes, I do. He gave them a very specific time and said, if you can fit it into like the three months that I have free, then mm-hmm. I'll do it. And so they decided to write it in sort of a crazily fast amount of time and yeah. got Broadway. So I think it was worth it. Yeah, it was the whole the whole journey to Broadway is crazy pants when you think about it. Because, yeah, Abbott was like, I go. <laughs> it's like the Poconos or somewhere. He's like, I go uh, uh, 
upstate every summer for the whole summer. He goes, and I leave in mid-May or like end of May. It's like, so that means we have a month of rehearsals, a month to cast it, and a month of pre-production. So this thing needs to be done by like March 1st, like end of February. And this and it was like January 2nd or something. And they're like, oh, bleh. so they wrote the whole thing. They brought on uh, Dean Fuller to help them and Jay Thompson to help them with the book. And they brought back in Shy because they said, you know, we need our leading lady to have a big old number. So they brought in Shy. They wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. Again, a lot of um, Winifred stuff. The songs that were kept from the first version, the opening many moons ago, uh, The Minstrel, The Jester, and I, which is a fun song because you have The Minstrel and The Jester and then The King who can't speak. So every time they have to, uh, re- anytime they refer to him in a lyric and he is you know there's a beat that's silent for him sometimes it happens on a rhyme so you have an idea of what the line is supposed to be even if they're not singing it it's very clever um song of love which is the i'm in love with a girl named fred which is a song that mary rogers hated and thought (laughs) didn't work until they finally performed it in front of an audience and she was like oh i guess i'm stupid and they make they uh yes it needed to be a full-length musical by early march and so it could be open by mid-May. So he could go to the Catskills. And the Eckharts were able to convince enough investors to invest in the show because George Abbott was coming on. And they're like, oh, and by the way, we've got Richard Rogers' daughter writing the music. And, you know, sometimes apples don't fall far from the tree. And right. they also were able to capitalize it at about 100000 and end up only needing 90000 So they returned ten to their uh, investors. And the Eckharts also designed the show very cheaply. And then they were in need of a theater. And the way they were able to get, do you know why this is in my series, Charles? Why this is considered off Broadway to Broadway? Do you know what theater they opened at originally? Yes, I believe they opened at the. Was it the Orpheum? No, the sorry, the Phoenix Phoenix Theater. Yes, it went through I'm many sorry. a name, many a name, but yes, the Orpheum is is little shop, much much smaller theater. The Phoenix was a truly Broadway sized off Broadway theater because this was a, at a time when. The rules of exactly what constituted an off-Broadway and on-Broadway theater changed throughout the 50s and 60s. By the time we got to the early 60s, uh, which is also why Man of La Mancha is not considered an off-Broadway to Broadway transfer, the rule became um, seat capacity. And so with the uh, Phoenix, eventually I think it was called the Eden, starting in the mid-60s, they could only use like half the theater if they wanted to keep their off-Broadway contracts. So it's this 1400 seat theater that they could, even if it was a, people were, you know, clamoring for tickets, they could only sell five or 600. And that continued, I'm pretty sure, up until Greece and in the uh, early 70s, possibly, no, I take that back. I think with Whorehouse in the end of 70s was when they finally were able to use the whole theater again. But for point is, is for mattress they were able to use the whole theater 12, uh, 12 to 1400 seat theater they had just started doing annual seasons you know like lincoln center or Playwrights horizons and they basically had they had all of the summer empty because because you know theatrical seasons don't usually go through the summer some do most don't and the Eckharts were able to convince the phoenix like you have space you've got nothing going on from may through <laughs> october like we will we are here willing to pay you rent let us use your theater so they did and wouldn't you know it the show was successful now do you know why 
it ended up being Carol Burnett and not Nancy Walker. Was it that they decided she was like too old? Was she? Sorry. It, I... <laughs> so it was, it was George Abbott's decision. Basically he decided as they went into pre-production and started to cast it, he. Right. Wanted to discover a star. Yeah. He wanted to discover a star and he, and he just didn't want to deal with a big personality. And he also thought she was at that point was wrong for it. Probably thought she was too old as well. And it was the only time in all of the pre-production of Once Upon a Mattress that there was a full-blown fight uh, because Nancy Walker was a friend of Marshall Bearer. It was written for her. It was promised to her. She was so ready to do it. And Marshall Bearer was ready to quit. And George Abbott was like, you don't understand. You have, I know you wrote this thing, dear boy, but I am George Abbott. I have power. <laughs> I have the power. <laughs> So yes, they discovered Carol Burnett. I don't know how they got her. She was starting to make a name for herself on TV on um, the Gary Moore show, but she wasn't really famous yet. She actually started doing double duty when she got Once Upon a Mattress. She would film Gary Moore during the day, do Once Upon a Mattress at night. Famously, there's a story that she fell asleep on one of the mattresses one night because she was just so exhausted. And they loved her voice. They thought she wasn't really a singer-singer. She was just loud, but she was a brilliant comedian. But they also thought she was too pretty. So they told her when she came into audition for George Abbott to uh, wear her ugliest outfit and wear no makeup. And she got the job. There is another story. It's not This one's not a cute one. Right. You... About Shane White. This is... Yep. Yep. I'm guessing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell this story, Charles? Tell, tell, tell the children what happened with this uh, poor woman and how sure. she got cast and how it's all terrible. Uh, Jane White, who was African-American and the daughter of Walter White, who ran the NAACP, came in to audition for the role of Queen Agravain in Once Upon a Mattress. George Abbott saw her and said, I don't believe that even a fictional land would have an African-American queen. And the and Mary Rogers really liked Shane White. And so she suggested that she go downtown to this photographer who would use makeup to lighten her skin and make her look essentially like she was white and come back like that and re-audition for George Abbott. And she had obviously some qualms about this, considering who her father was, considering just her whole culture that they were essentially asking her to give up. But eventually she decided to do it. She went downtown, got the makeup, came back uptown. George Abbott initially refused to see her again because he said, I think I was right. We can't have an African-American queen. But after seeing the way that her skin was lightened, he sort of relented and said, yes, she is the best person. And if she can do this, then we can have her be in the show. So that's the sort of ugly story that I know I saw first in the documentary Beyond the Golden Age. Mm -hmm. Rick is interesting documentary where he has interviews with Jane White and Carol Burnett about this process. Oh, I did not know that that was covered in Beyond the Golden Age. I have to oh, yeah. that now. The sequel, the sequel mm. that they did on PBS. And so that's, yeah, that's essentially the story of how Jane White came to be Queen Agravain. Yeah. And then went on to do it two more times for both of the televised versions. Right, right. Yeah, this was this was a big get for her. And she was able to do a lot of TV afterwards. But uh, Mary Rogers tells this really sad story when they're in L.A., I think, about to shoot Once Upon a Mattress the second time. And 
she's asking Jane, like, oh, what are you going to do after this? And Jane just, like, broke down into tears. And she said, I'm too black for the white uh, performers. And I'm too white for the black performers. No one will hire me right now. And, you know, this show, which was a great success for her and did lead to more work, didn't lead to the kind of work she wanted to do. And it didn't lead to more work for a very long period of time. And it's a shame because she is so good in the role. She's got this amazing voice, amazing diction, and really nails the kind of weird balance of Agravain because Agravain, because of sort of the style of humor of Once Upon a Mattress, it is very easy to call this show like slightly sexist because of just sort of a lot of the tropes that it adheres to the female characters. In fairness to the writers, they do the same stereotypical tropes to the male characters as well. If the women are either shrews or docile the men are all just bumbling idiots and that's just sort of the nature of burlesque comedy but for aggravating because she is the oldest female part in the in the show and has the most power it is very easy to lean into the negative connotations that people that a lot of people might have for an older woman in power of you know oh she's shrill oh she's negative she's mean she's a she's you know controlling and jane white is just so good at just making her austere and Um, very uh what's we're looking for very earnest in her convictions her convictions are bad she she because the queen does not want her son to marry and that's something that's brought up all the time when donald's is like i don't think you want me to marry mom and she something i know very much about she keeps she just talks up a storm all the time and <laughs> keeps on saying of course i want you to marry of course i want you to marry i want i want you to marry the right woman but we always see every time something could possibly make dauntless happy and, po- and possibly become king she won't have it not because she doesn't love her son but because she wants to remain in power and right. And yeah, it's very easy to just make that part awful. And Jane does a really wonderful job with it. I would have loved to have seen what Lip- with uh, Lipsinka had done with it. I'm sure, you know, Lipsinka channeled that same energy of just like grand dame uh, yeah. austereness. <laughs> Which yeah. made it very fun. I actually think the problem with Carol Burnett's take on that role in the 2005 version mm. is that it's almost a little bit too Miss Hannigan-esque. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. some of her line readings, I feel like could definitely have come from either character. <laughs> it's um, it's almost a little bit too low class seeming, if that makes sense. She doesn't have the same like regal bearing that, mm. that she would have that much power over her son. Whereas with Jane White, sort of the second she comes on stage, you just see that. You see her taking control of everything around her. Sensitivity, sensitivity, I'm just loaded with that. In this one word is the epitome of the aristocrat. Sensitive soul and sensitive stomach, sensitive hands and feet. This is the blessing, also the curse of being the true elite. Common people don't you, like you need. Almost someone who's had like Shakespearean experience to play this part because she has to take herself so seriously. There's and and then all these roles are different flavors and they kind of all have to balance each other out because not everyone can be a clown. You need to have some semblance of the world of you know 
the Renaissance or, or maybe medieval times, whatever it is. Uh, it's yeah, you need a, you need that balance. And Queen Agravain is definitely a role where it has to be straightforward. There's comedy to it, but it is definitely not lowbrow comedy. But yes, that is the unfortunate <laughs> history with Once Upon a Mattress with Jane White, with the Jane White of it all. Um, yeah. The I was looking up some of the reviews for the show. It got mostly positive reviews. Ironically, the not ironically, but um, the the people who got the best responses were Mary Rogers for her music and Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett makes a whole lot of sense, and it is a fun score. But I know at the time of the writing. Mary Rogers was felt like by the entire team as sort of the weak link, the one who couldn't really keep up with the, how fast everyone else was churning out the work. You know, they, they had to write the show very quickly. She would often have to, uh, difficulty figuring out the right melody or a tune. And George Abbott, when they, once they got into rehearsals and they started teching the show and he would need new lines on the fly, they couldn't come up with it fast enough. So he would just come up with something. And when the show finally opened, the reviews were like, well, Carol Burnett's a star. And, they went, and the music is actually really strong. Mary Rogers has her own unique voice. And everyone involved was like, are you kidding me? What about <laughs> us? <laughs> like this, we were, we were the ones who came up with it. We wrote the, the script and the lyrics. And they're like, I don't know what to tell you, kids. It's, it's Mary and it's Carol. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it wasn't originally planned to go to Broadway. I think if they had their druthers, they would have just stayed at the Phoenix forever. But where it was a very popular ticket. But the Phoenix eventually needed to kick them out because their season was going to start <laughs> and they were able to move to the St. James theater and officially be a Broadway production where they became Tony eligible. And then they transferred uh, quite a few more times. Charles, yeah. did you know this? I did. It's a very interesting story how that could even happen that they transfer so many times without going totally bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they, they turned like a decent profit by the time they closed, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like a huge money-making hit. The, the money really came in with the TV specials and then just from amateur productions because for a time, for like a solid 20 years, it was like the most produced musical in America. Yeah, like schools everywhere would do it, camps everywhere would do it, community theaters, because it is it is a relatively safe musical. It's a pleasant yeah. musical. It's a story everybody knows, and it's got a dozen principal roles, so everyone gets a moment to shine. It's it, all the things that they had to write out of, necessity for this piece ended up being to its advantage later on down the road and as we mentioned it was nominated for the tony for best musical opposite 
Gypsy and Fiorello and Sound of Music and Take Me Along. Take Me Along doesn't really matter so much, but Gypsy was important because Mary was best friends with Stephen Sondheim, was frenemies with Arthur Lawrence. Uh, Her father, Richard Rogers, wrote Sound of Music. And then her former boyfriend was once engaged to Hal Prince, produced Fiorello. That also was co-written by Bach and Harnick, who she knew, she was friends with. Didn't it actually, didn't the book mention that she dated Sheldon Harnick at one point? I think she did, yeah. I think it may have been after Fiorello and Once Upon a Mattress. That woman dated everybody. Uh, (laughs) And 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 oh, on top of that, Julie Stein made a major pass at her when she was getting divorced. So she, she, we're just like that ballroom, the night of the Tony Awards. Mary Rogers must have just looked around and been like, oh, half of this room is filled with people I love, half of this room is filled with people I hope die in a ditch." And <laughs> so she's like, "I'm just gonna drink." I have to imagine. I really wish she had talked about the night of the Tony Awards, but I don't think she does, considering how candid she is about everything else in her life i would have loved to have heard her thoughts about being up against her father for best musical yeah there's one story in there that stuck out to me about the song she played for her father yeah when they were working on once upon a mattress i don't remember exactly what song it was but she did play him a song and basically he was like where why did you put the bridge there and she's like i don't know i thought it sounded nice he was like i wouldn't have done that and she's like cool i'm never playing you a song of mine ever again i'm in love with a girl named fred she dances with such grace you are bound to sing her praises till you're purple in the face bravo, bravo, bravissimo, bravo. Bravissimo. Oh, I don't know if you know this. Pat Carroll was originally going to be signed uh, as the original Princess Winifred before Carol Burnett. Did you know that? I didn't know that. No. Do we know who Pat Carroll was? What she most famous was most famous for? Most famous for being Ursula and right the tentacles. Yes, in in the Little Mermaid, a a movie. My listeners might know. I like a little bit. Although I believe no, she didn't do. She did not do one of the TV versions of Once Upon a Mattress. She did one of the TV versions of Cinderella. That's a different fairy tale. Right. right. Yeah. In my, I don't know why in my mind I was like, I don't know. I feel like Pat Carroll played that, played Mattress on TV at one point, but she didn't. She did Cinderella. Uh, Someone who did do the first Once Upon a Mattress on TV that that makes me very happy is uh, Shani Wallace was the Lady Larkin in the 1960s Once Upon a Mattress. Those of you who are big movie musical fans will know Shani Wallace as Nancy, one of my favorite performances in a movie musical ever. So, Shy, favorite song. What is, do you have a least favorite song in this show, Charles? A least favorite song? I definitely do, actually, now that, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. It's a song that I think they were wise to actually cut from the 1960s TV version, but you can find it in the 2005 movie, which is the ballad that Lady Larkin and Sir Harry sing right at the very beginning when he's discussing, I'm forgetting the name of it at the moment, but he's discussing how he'll go out and... Oh, is the In a Little While song? Yes, yes. That's the one I mean. I think the show is definitely at its best when it's funny. Even some of the ballad moments for Winifred in the show are not as strong. They tend to fall a little more on the generic side of things. Mm. Less inventive than the comedy yeah, there's not a lot of earnestness in this show. And when they try to touch on it, it's not 
very successful. Though, I mean, honestly, the Lark and Harry stuff is my least favorite stuff in this show. Yeah. And although I don't, I don't mind that first song. It's cute enough. I think the best Lark and Harry moment is when she tells them that she's pregnant. Right. Because the way they set up that joke is great. Because it's all, it's all innuendo. It's the fifties, so it's got to be innuendo. And in the sixties version, they changed it that they got married in secret, not that they're about to have a baby out of wedlock. And then in the seventies version, where Bernadette Peters is Lady Larkin, I believe they go back to she's pregnant. And the way they set that up is, you know, when Harry says, we'll find a princess. If not in a couple of months, I'll go out and find one myself. She's like, so we don't have a lot of time for that. And he's, and he's like, why? And he goes, well, do you know? remember that day we did the picnic and the fair and the jousting? Yeah. And, and you and I went off alone and we sat on the hill. Uh-huh. And we went and watched the sunset. Uh-huh. Well, I'm going to have a baby. And <laughs> it's the... It's, they don't say anything outright. It's all very wonderful. And then she just drops the bomb and it's really, it's really funny. And I really appreciate it. And, <laughs> but after that, Larkin, I don't think gets a single laugh ever again. <laughs> she is, I don't want to say a thankless role. She's, you know, she's fine. I There's a cute bit where she meets Winifred for the first time and doesn't know that Winifred is the princess and thinks that she's like the new scullery maid. But after that, like, you know, Larkin is mostly just a killjoy. She's crying all the time. She's hormonal. She wants to run away. She doesn't want to run, run away. And she's got everyone, including Winifred, constantly telling her, that's Sir Harry. He loves you so much. I think you should just, you know, shut your woman mouth and, and stop <laughs> complaining and just be with Harry. And I'm like, listen, this woman is <laughs> growing a baby. She has a right to speak her mind. Okay. The right. show doesn't. The show doesn't love it when women speak their minds. It's always like, why don't you, why don't you shut your woman mouth and uh, just enjoy your lot? Because I mean, when we say that Winifred is considered outspoken, or Winifred is just sort of un- unassuming. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I do know what you mean. Actually, it's it's easy to think of her as outspoken when on first viewing, but now that you bring it up, it's not really that she says anything that's against the sort of policy of the kingdom or anything really bad about any of the members of the kingdom. It's just like she behaves differently than they're used to. So yeah, I'd say she's not that outspoken. Yeah, it's it's not like she sees injustice and she goes, this will not stand, right. I am Winifred. She's, <laughs> yeah, it's more like, as you said, it's the cultural shock of who she is and where she comes from, from what they know. And she will say the wrong thing, not because she wants to challenge anybody, but because she just doesn't know. And it's what also makes her so likable, because anytime she offends, it's never intentional. And that sort of, I want to say it's the beauty of the humor of the show. It's what makes the the first half of the show funny. And then they kind of keep going back to that well, and it doesn't always work out so well, in my opinion. But yeah, like, for a show that's all about, like, defying conventional norms the one thing that it definitely adheres to is these women and their opinions must we let them
intriguing aggravating considering the fact that she's supposed to be such a um not parasite but like you know just a depleter of fun a killjoy <laughs> is not ex- the right term a depleter of fun i think she gets a lot of really great laughs and she yeah. one of them is when she tells dauntless like i don't want you to feel bad for a second that your father and i don't get along and never have and never will <laughs> right and when she says that thing about like your father is a like stupid angry et cetera, et cetera, man but i want you to respect him that's one of my favorite lines in it it's as so well. good he's 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 awful he's evil he's stupid he's a blah 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 but he's your father and i want you to respect him like she's it's what it is is it's like how familiar are you with jewish mother guilt charles karsh I am familiar with it. I won't say in my own home, but I'm familiar with the trope. Of... I've read of these of these things. As I love my mother very dearly, as anyone who listened to the Torch Song trilogy episode will attest. Yes, I love her very dearly. Say what? That was a great episode. I listened to it. I'm... Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, she. I love her very dearly. She is very good at the Jewish mother guilt. And the the hilarious thing about her is that she doesn't usually know that that's what she's doing. I have to sort of point it out to her. <laughs> but it's the like, oh, it's okay. I'll just, you know, I'll do this on my own. Even though I weigh five pounds and I can't lift more than half a pound of flour. I'll, it's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll repaint the room and it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm broken and bruised and bloodied, but it's fine. I want you to be happy. I want you to go have fun. And <laughs> It's that, but with the regal austereness of a queen. It's, you know, it's, it's again, it's that Borscht Belt humor of the, like, oh, don't, it's it's the passive aggressiveness of the not saying what you mean, wanting to get what you, uh, trying to get what you want through guilt. And the audience laughs because we all recognize, we've all seen it before, and it's not just mothers or mothers-in-law, it's anybody, but it's mostly attributed to mothers. Right. Yeah. And there is some... I think there's definitely a Jewish flavor throughout the whole show. I think Sarah Jessica Parker uses an almost like stereotypically Jewish voice a little bit, or at least that's what I picked up from the clip of Shy. Do you think I, that? Well, I don't... Is Sarah Jessica Parker Jewish? I don't think she is. She, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I think she's trying to be like Brooklyn-y, which, I mean, obviously the lines get crossed with that, you know, of what's Brooklyn and what's Jewish. But yeah, it seems like she's trying to be, she's like maybe trying to channel her inner Dorothy Loudon and, and find some sort of Brooklynite sound. But for the most part, from what I recall, she did, and you can sort of see a little bit in the bootleg. And when you listen to the cast recording, I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker is just pure charm, right? If she had the singing voice in another production at that time, she would have been a really lovely Lady Larkin because she probably would have been able to find laughs from just being earnest. But she's not like a broad comedian. She's not a clown. And so a lot of things that Carol Burnett would do, that's just sort of like, oh, yuck. Sarah Jessica Parker would play in the same demeanor as we eventually would know her from with Carrie Bradshaw on Sex and the City. And yeah, Sarah Jessica Parker's humor comes from finding the humor out of earnestness not the clownishness and you can see that in first wives club she's like I, the most clownish she ever is is in hocus pocus but even then she's just mostly playing ditzy very wholeheartedly um 
Like, she's not really doing weird faces like Kathy Najimi is. She's just, you know, bouncing up and down. Dead man's toe! Dead man's toe! Uh, have you seen First Wives Club, Charles? I have seen First Wives Club. I haven't seen Hocus Pocus, but... I'm not a Hocus Pocus person. I, unfortunately, am a adult homosexual man who's friends with many other homosexuals. And so when Hocus Pocus 2 came out, I was invited to quite a few viewing parties. <laughs> <laughs> So I saw that movie more times than I wanted to, uh, including the first Hocus Pocus, because some of these viewing parties were double features. I am not a Hocus Pocus person, but I will say it gave me more appreciation for Sarah Jessica Parker. But if you watch her in First Wives Club, which I still think is her best performance to date, she is not camping it up. She's just playing an absurd person very realistically. And right. it's 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 the specificity, it's the lack of commentary that makes it so good. And with Once Upon a Mattress, you do need to have a bit of commentary because it's not like this is I'm trying to, this is not uh you know like uh Will and Grace or uh trying to, like Veep, which is you know finding the humanity of the absurd this is just absurd from start to finish this is the carol burnett show this is uh (laughs) laughing and snl and so you need that mentality which is why sjp try hard as she did and pleasant enough as she is in the role was not successful and mary rogers is very blunt about it in her book she's like when she they realized once they once carol left the show and that's partly why they ended up closing is because the week after carol left their ticket sales plummeted and they're like well we'll just close up shop now back in the days when broadway shows would announce closing on friday for sunday and (laughs) they realized after the show was done that how hard of a role winifred is to cast yeah because you need the big voice you need a strong comedian she's got to be likable and she said Sarah Jessica Parker had one of those things and what she meant was Sarah Jessica Parker is very likable right um um, one of the people that I've interviewed for backstage babble was Liza Gennaro who's the daughter of a famous choreographer Peter Gennaro but mm -hmm. she also choreographed that revival with Sarah Jessica Parker and she was saying that sort of everything about it was wrong-headed that the director Gerald Gutierrez I think Mm -hmm. was not a very funny director or not someone who was great at directing comedy that it wasn't really her kind of show because it's too unnaturalistic and that Sarah Jessica Parker, although she worked very hard and was very nice, didn't really have enough star presence and also wasn't properly cast. So yeah, that was an interesting insight. The one- yeah, everything I've heard about the revival is just that it was a nightmare from the moment it began to the moment <laughs> it ended and that Gerald Gutierrez really just was so wrong for it and unfortunately when the what's the term where it's like when the head is rotted or something like that like with like a fish uh there's something about like when the head is poisonous the head is rotted something like that it all comes from the head and then it trickles down to everything else so when your director is wrong for it and bad and setting a bad vibe for the rehearsal room no one's going to do good work even if they're even if it was possible for them to come around the fact that they're miscast there's actually one thing that surprised me was in the video that you sent me to help prepare. That's the bootleg of the Sarah Jessica Parker version. Mm-hmm. You go down to the comments. One of the first comments I saw was actually from Lewis Cleal, who played Prince Dauntless, saying that production was a very hard time. Our director was a tyrant. And like, it's a little bit fun to look back on it. But at the same time, it was not a good experience. So that yeah. I thought that was interesting that he would say that so publicly. 
Oh yeah. Well, I think par- it probably helps that it's you know twenty six years later. Right. right. <laughs> Gerald. Uh, Gerald Gutierrez. He might. He might be dead. I don't. Is he? Is he's he, dead. Yeah. Okay. I, so he's dead now. So he, he doesn't have to worry about that. But I mean, it is. I mean, it also harmed Gerald Gutierrez's career for a while because he was sort of considered this master of revivals. He had done all these amazing uh revivals in the 90s he did the two piano most happy fella he did delicate balance for lincoln center theater he did another revival he did uh the heiress for lincoln center theater and everybody was like this guy really knows how to like bring shows back and uh so with what's about the mattress i think everyone was hoping he would work the same magic but it's it's like it's like having bartlett share do once upon a mattress like bartlett share can do revivals not every revival uh he he needs to be, he can only really do shows that require sort of a more light uh i don't want to say dry but slightly dry touch uh so people when the when the bad 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 revival of carousel happened in 2018 everyone's like oh this scene of bartlett share i'm like bartlett share does not do sexuality bartlett share <laughs> does polite interest in each other like bartlett share is really good at the like coyly looking at each other from across the room he is not good at the grabbing you and kissing girls and same thing like you would not even though people are like bartlett share is such a great golden age musical director i'm like you would not ever have him do once upon a mattress (laughs) yeah definitely definitely not i actually wonder who do you think would be a good director if they were to do this now maybe casey nicola or yeah casey would do a good job with it uh i'm sorry now i'm just in my head of a bar, a bar the revival of Once Upon a Mattress starring <laughs> Kelly O'Hara. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> her, her beautiful soprano trying to sing shy. Shy, I've always been shy. Um, Casey would be good. Strowman would do a good job with it, I think. Uh, who's, a really, who's a good comedian? Maybe Scott Ellis. Ellis is very I- hit and miss for me. And... Okay. You, so I'm going to think about this for a second. And while I think about this, I want you to tell the listeners something you really love about this show and why. Hmm. Um, there are actually a lot of things I really love about this show. I would say the main one is the ending. I think that there were a few moments in the show where it lost me a little bit. and It lost my interest, especially as I was saying with some of the ballads and less funny moments. But I think that the end makes the whole thing feel so right and like it's been an extremely cohesive thing. I think there's always that expression about like if you leave them feel if you leave them with something good, it can like make an audience think that the whole show was good, even if it wasn't. And I think that's definitely some of what's at play here. I really like the thing of them having pulled this trick. So it's a slight twist on the happy ending that we were expecting. But then we also are not made to feel like the whole thing was a lying. She didn't deserve to be the princess because they go back and show that even the P would have been enough. So mm-hmm. I think it's very sweet because it shows how they helped her, but it also shows how she really is a princess. And I like that little joke where they say a princess is a delicate thing at the end, the ensemble is singing, and then she starts snoring very loudly on the bed without the P in it. So I think that's a really nice way to sum up the fun of the show, the point of the show, and bring the main characters to a good resolution. So I think that is actually my favorite part is the ending. That's the, that's a great one. It, it, it is a very perfect button. And I think Andrew Reynolds talked about this with Hairspray when he when he 
replaced in Hairspray, Jack O'Brien would come in every couple of months and give notes. And he would say, like, if you're if you think you're having an off night, if you don't think the audience is with you, is like just work really hard to make you can't stop the beat as good as possible, because that number is almost foolproof. And if you just give it your all, it'll send the audience out on such a high that they will forgive you for the rest of the show. <laughs> um, and it's true I mean, when when a show if a show starts well and ends well people will forget about the things in the middle that they maybe liked a little less because they're left with the excitement of when a show begins and the excitement of when it ends. And I don't think Once Upon a Mattress starts the most excitingly. I mean, Many Moons Ago is meant to sort of be how you would expect a fairy tale production to begin. And then we go into opening for a princess, which is actually one of my favorite songs. Uh, I like the very jazziness of it. And I actually really love the... 90s arrangement of it it's just so it's just so fun uh, i like the overlapping they do on the why 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 must every princess get the bird it's just uh, it's so fun i was thinking christopher ashley i think would do a really good job with this show and my reasoning might yeah. seem a little wild to you charles are you ready for this <laughs> Just I, because, <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. I would say someone <laughs> listens to the pod because someone knows that I love Diana the Musical. So do I, I. <laughs> I love it for all the wrong reasons. So I was at a birthday party last night, and someone brought it up. And oh no, it's, it's because I had seen Kimberly Akimbo, which I will do as a, as a bonus episode for this series. And I oh. I bought some merch for it from it because I I would just I'm so in love with that show, and. Someone asked, oh, are you a merch queen? I was like, no, the last show I brought I bought merch for was um, Diana. And that was just because it was like second to last show. I bought as much as I could because like this this <laughs> stuff will never be around ever again. I got I to buy whatever I can. And someone's like, oh, my God, Diana. And I go, that show is a masterpiece of a disaster. It is category four <laughs> brilliance of just everything is insane and everything is bonkers. And I wouldn't change a second of it. But because of that, you want a director who's willing to kind of go for broke that way and just try everything. And for something as absurd as Once Upon a Mattress, that actually is the right mentality and and, and works for that. So I would like to see what he would do. And I also think, despite everything with Diana, he's overall very good at casting. The original company of Diana is strong. His casting in the original Come From Away company is really good. I mean, that Rocky Horror Show with just Tony winners and nominees no through the roof is great he's i think he's really good at casting so i'd like to see what he would do with once upon a mattress who would you who are some of your dream winifreds yeah well i was actually thinking about this because i was anticipating that maybe you would ask this question so actually the main one the first one i thought of was someone you mentioned earlier on which was bonnie milligan Mm -hmm. i think that would be fun and that actually led me to think I don't think it would be a terrible idea to have her as Winifred and Victoria Clark as Queen Agravain. I think that could be sort of fun if that was maybe like a concept for those who love Kimberly Kimball. Maybe on off nights they can do that. At the <laughs> and, um, That's going to be their Patty Lapone at Les Mouches. <laughs> on their one night off, they just go downtown and do Once Upon a Mattress. Right. And another idea I had was uh, maybe Jennifer Samard, like a slightly younger. Jennifer Samard just can do anything she wants. I don't care what age she is. I don't care how tired she is. I guess I'm. 
I personally am getting a little tired of dream casting Jennifer Smart only because in my mind <laughs> I'm going, she's got to be tired of me casting her in everything. <laughs> like it's just, right. it's like Matt, uh, flower drum song. Who do you want? I'm like Jennifer Smart. I don't know. <laughs> dream girls, Jennifer Smart. It's I, I Jennifer Smart is one of the few talent aliens of our time, and so I just want her to be in absolutely everything. I think Bonnie and Vicky are a great idea. I Vicky has not been allowed to be like broad and can't be comedic in so long and i would love to see her do it again uh because i don't because she was in urine town for a hot second she's you know was in cabaret for a very long time she can do villain and she can do broad but she's just so good at nuance that we always just like so vicky i know you want to do noises off but have <laughs> you considered doing a david hair play because no one does nuance like you <laughs> it's right she's like fine i guess i'll give you a multi-layered heartbreaking performance yet again <laughs> and she's like sometimes i just uh there's a tv show called bojack horseman on netflix i don't know if you're familiar with it i know i haven't watched it but i know of it yeah it's it's a hard show to recommend to people because it is it's brilliant and hilarious but it's also incredibly dark but there's a great joke in the first season because it takes place in hollywood it's a cartoon show and they have naomi watts playing herself uh in a movie version of a real life event and she's playing the movie version of Alison Bree's character Diane and like Naomi Watts what what drew you to this role she was like I was just really tired of playing all these multi-dimensional complicated female leads who have interesting storylines like for once I just want to be the hot girl in a rom-com she's like <laughs> I'm never she's like I'm never given stupid women roles who are just the prizes to be won I'm always given these really interesting roles in these complex movies with fascinating directors who treat me with such respect and obviously like the joke is in Hollywood it's always the opposite of that right. but I I imagine Victoria Clark sitting with her agent and she's like please just get me a jukebox musical and he's like I'm sorry Vicky I found you yet again an esoteric musical where you play a very complex part and she's like oh fine I guess I'll get to no nominate for a Tony again so for once I, for once I just want to play the hot female leads mother in a jukebox musical can you do that for me agent I, I did have one more Winifred idea, which was uh, Annalie Ashford, like maybe a little younger Annalie Ashford. What's with you and if, the young Charles? Forty's not dead, right? Right. Just for just for this particular role, I think. But I'm not sure. I was having a lot more trouble thinking of possible Queen Agravains. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just that that style of actress is not as much around anymore. Yeah, that style of actress definitely isn't as around as much anymore. Uh, in a in a pre Cosby world, I would cast Felicia Rashad, but unfortunately, oh, she's right. made her alliances very clear, and uh, she is not wrong for the role. But I don't necessarily need to see her on stage again. Uh, Annalie's a good choice for Winifred. I would need a director who would challenge her because she's very she has very specific ticks that she tends to use a lot, and I. Would like to see new ones. Uh, trying to think of other ones. Well, now I'm, now I'm trying to think of aggravations. I'm trying to think of uh, Dauntlesses. 
Because the other thing that's fun about this show is you really can cast people who you wouldn't think of as these tropes, right? Um, Dauntless is technically the prince, but he's sort of a sad sack and a goon. And I feel like you would want to cast someone who you would more think would do play Dungeons and Dragons than who would slay a, a dragon, you know? Uh, <laughs> and that is, I'm trying to think like who would be right for that because you know like dennis o'hare did the tracy ullman version he wasn't really right for it but someone like that so it dauntless should be cast how we should be casting seymour's in little shop we should not be <laughs> casting the twinks from spring awakening we need to cast the people who seem like america's losers right, right. uh yeah i don't know and this isn't a commentary on these actors being like, oh, I look at you and I just think loser, but that rather these are people who could believably play a loser. Uh, so I'm trying to, who would be a good Domless, do we think? I'm not sure. Well, this is actually sort of in a different vein than what you were just saying, but I feel like Matt Doyle could be fun in more of the like Ken Berry way. I'm going to reject that notion, Charles. Respect your opinion, rejecting it fully. Uh, I... Uh, like a Christopher Fitzgerald is more up that alley for me for Dauntless of who I would want. Um, and I also think age doesn't have to be a factor. I think it's actually funny if the characters are in their early forties, there's, <laughs> there's a bit more of a desperation to it all. Like you, you all of a sudden realize just how long this has been going on. And it also makes Winifred's eagerness to get married a little more understandable if she's, a bit older than the typical ingenue not because like there's a deadline to get married but when you've been on your own for so long and all you want is companionship it starts to gnaw away at you a little bit that that, that is a subject people talk about more in depth and dramatically when we get to significant other everybody don't you worry your pretty little heads <laughs> but for this show in the comedic sense i mean that's what the song happily ever after is right with that winifred has an act too which is i would say that's really her i want song and it's <laughs> It's early in act two. It's a very <laughs> weird place to put the I want song. Um, but like, you know, that the, the gist of that song is she wants to get married. She wants to settle down. She wants the things she's read in the fairy tales. And unfortunately, fairy tales are not real life because all the princesses in the fairy tales get help. They have fairy godmothers. They have the seven dwarfs. They have, you know, they have all these things. And she's like, it's just me. I don't have a... <laughs> One of my favorite lines is she goes, I don't have a fairy godmother. I haven't got a godmother. I have a mother. She's an ordinary woman. <laughs> I, 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 I even like the way Sarah Jessica Parker says that. Carol Burnett says it more like, I have a mother. And Sarah Parker's like, I have a mother. She's an ordinary woman. It's it's fun. Um, okay. So more in the Christopher Fitzgerald mold. Going down that route, who are we thinking then for Dauntless? Okay, um, maybe like Greg Hilchrith. If yeah. If we're going to keep going with the company, guys, I'm down with that. I'm down with um, that. One idea I had, did you see Some Like It Hot yet? Have you seen? I am seeing that in about three weeks from today. So oh. this will be, I think, yeah, I'll be seeing it the week or two after this episode comes out. So there's a guy in that who... I think it might be his first like major part. His name is Kevin Delaglila. Maybe you know him from other shows. He could also be very funny as as Dauntless. Mm -hmm. The name sounds very familiar. I feel like I definitely have seen him some stuff. I look forward to seeing him in Sound Like It Hot. I think that's a good choice. 
Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Speaking of company, I was like, what if Patty played Agravain? I know she's like, I'm done with musicals, but is she right. really? <laughs> she she's- can do the like non-equity tour of once upon a mattress. <laughs> She'll get her equity card back again. I'm sure she means what she says right now. And something will come along, something always does, and she will change her tune as adults. As the times change and as we change, we reserve the right to change our perspectives and minds throughout time. And Patty will have her equity card again at some point. I guarantee you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) In the meantime, yeah, she'll do the Theater Works Tour version of Once Upon a Mattress. (laughs) Uh, Maybe even to going along with Patty Lupone, who it made me think of immediately, was I think Christine Ebersole would also be a good Queen Agravain, actually. Ooh, yeah. If she ever gets vaccinated, I think she'd be a great (laughs) aggravate. Yeah. (laughs) You know that about Christine, right? That she uh, she doesn't trust them shots. Well, I knew she was sort of like a crazy Republican. I didn't know she was not vaccinated, but I assumed. she. I mean, she might be now. She's definitely, I mean, I don't know how crazy Republican she is now. We don't hear from her much anymore. But I I know that she... uh, Definitely, some some of her opinions came to light at bad moments. Uh, right. Where we're like, like, ooh, I don't think it's a cute look that both you and Marion Cotillard think that nine eleven was faked. It's like, <laughs> yeah, guys, we're spilling all the tea today. For for even though this is my one non explicit episode, Charles and I are just laying out all the Broadway tea for you yes. guys. <laughs> um, but no, Christine actually would be a great aggravating. First of all, she's in addition to being a crazy Republican, she's also crazy talented and has still given to this day the best performance I've ever seen in a musical. But yeah, she's so funny. And 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 especially if you give her the chance to play an uber bitch, she's just gonna nail it harder than anyone. My time is at a premium, for soon the world will see me a maternal bride to be. I know I mustn't worry, Harry. Still I wish you'd hurry, Harry. Harry. Just a little while, you and I will be one, two, three, four. In a little while. Considering what you were saying earlier, which is true about Larkin not being that funny a role, there are often funny actresses like Jane Krakowski who end up in that role, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe just a coincidence, but I think, yeah, they try to cast women who are funny in the role, and then either something happens with direction or what, but like, like Jane. You you listen to her on the cast recording or you watch her in the booth, like she's not funny. She she lands the I'm pregnant line. Um and that's it. And Bernadette Peters does it in the 70s version, and she's actually pretty good because Bernadette back in the day was a really brilliant comedian. Uh like I'm trying to think who's, you know, a very funny youngster these days of the of the ingenue persuasion. And there aren't many. Like a young Jenny Barber would do a good job with it, I suppose. Uh, right. Well, I actually, um, if I had to give out like a Razzie for the worst performance in any Once Upon a Mattress version, I'd probably give it to Zooey Deschanel in the 2005 movie. It's just, there's something about it that makes it seem so out of place. Like her voice sounds so modern and yeah. it doesn't fit in with the show or the humor. And she's, I think, the only Larkin to not land that line about being pregnant. Yeah, she's absolutely, You're that is correct. First of all, that that ABC TV version is uh, 
is no good from start to finish and it's it's in t- it's miscast from top to bottom no one is right for their roles uh <laughs> except i i do like edward hibbert as oh yeah who does he play the wizard um he is the one who's like asking the questions at the beginning yeah because uh, aggravane's like right hand man is essentially a wizard of some sort uh right. which i mean not not a real wizard but you know talks about horoscopes and all that good stuff which today is just instagram but (laughs) he yeah i mean edward hibbert is just a very brilliant comedian i i could not get over him in drowsy chaperone or him in curtains he's god i to this day i still remember when bambi says i think my dance is very arousing and he says the only thing you arouse is suspicion (laughs) (laughs) Just such a wonderful, dry, coward person. Uh, yeah, he's 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 good in that. But yeah, Zoe's not good, or Zoe—I don't know how they pronounce her name. Uh, she's not good as Larkin. She's kind. She always sort of feels a little out to lunch in that version. Matthew Morrison, God bless him, doesn't have a funny bone in his body. <laughs> Carol Burnett is just miscast. Tracy Ullman gives it the old college try, but much like Sarah Jessica Parker, just is not right a right fit. Dennis O'Hare, love him to death. He is not an endearing personality. You watch him in anything, and part of you is just going like, what are you plotting? You always feel like he's plotting something. His character's going to plot something. So his Dauntless feels like, I don't know, like he's going to, you know, poison everybody or something. He's he's always, like, there's a menace about him. Uh, Actually, I think that might be one of our disagreements. I did like Dennis O'Hare in that role. I actually am not a big fan of I'm forgetting his name now. The actor in the original who did it in the 60s mm-hmm. TV special. What's his name again? Do you remember? Uh, I might have it written down because he did it on Broadway as well. And, yeah. And I mean, nobody who did the show even liked him. So you're in agreement with that. You're in agreement with <laughs> oh. that. Uh, do I have his name? Keep, uh, why, why, why is it that you do not like him and why you do like Dennis O'Hare as I look for this name? I just think, I think he falls a little bit flat. He you can't see why she would want to marry him even which is another layer beyond why the mother doesn't want him to marry her because mm-hmm. he does feel like sort of a cold fish i think dennis o'hare i think is more interesting despite still being of course like subjugated by his mother but he i think he seems more charming i don't pick up on the threatening thing as much but maybe it's because i haven't seen him in as many other roles where where that is what he is all you have to do is watch one episode of true blood and you're like oh you play pure evil really well he (laughs) i mean i also remember seeing him as the baker and into the woods in the park and just being like you're not you're there's something there was something like off about it he's i mean he's a brilliant brilliant actor but i mean you see him in true blood you see him in assassins and there's like there's a little bit of danger about him which makes him such an exciting presence in anything he does but it also just like I don't know. There's he never feels entirely harmless, and I feel like Dauntless has to be harmless. The, the I never. I, I guess this is part maybe like not a flaw of the show, but something to be explored is the Winifred Dauntless relationship, right? So we have Dauntless, who all they he, they both he and Winifred all they want to do is get married, uh, not necessarily to each other, but just in general. And he's still kind of a man boy who's under the thumb of his mother and very weak. And Winifred is just sort of the a version of the manic pixie dream girl. You know, she's not like any other girl. She swam the moat. 
right which is like he even says like that's the immediate reason why he likes her and why he wants her to stay because when she's when she says you like me why do you like me basically implying like you don't know me and his response is you swam the moat (laughs) and uh after that it's just sort of about everything about her is just so different and fascinating but the show never really gives you any connection between them other than the fact that like they both are just in love with the idea of getting married so when he's like i'm in love with a girl named fred and obviously the joke of that is her you know her name is winifred call her by her nickname fred and the whole thing is it's the song of love it's funny but i never buy that he's in love with her or if or if he is i'm just like okay you're i mean your emotional maturity is that of a grasshopper you i don't think you really know what you're talking about i don't think winifred knows either so like their happy ending is sweet domesticity in a in a pleasant way if not necessarily a fulfilling kind of way and i'm i mean obviously we're overanalyzing a show that's you know meant to be a a vaudeville but (laughs) it's but i think that there there is a, a little bit of a heart that is there that could be a little larger with just a little deeper digging of that relationship. Not like that they have a serious, I'm not my father's son moment together, but just (laughs) a a few more moments where like they're on the same page in some kind of, right. Uh, I think we kind of chart his maturity through his relationship with Winifred of, you know, he slowly starts to stand up to his mother. He tries to do the gentlemanly thing and escort her to her room, letting her sleep at the end, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I just, it's up to the actors, I guess, to have that bond and your the original Dauntless. Yeah. He's a bit of a cold fish. I think that's also partly the role of like Dauntless is just, you're just like, you're like, oh, you poor wet blanket. Just go over there and and dry off. And uh, I think all you can really do with Dauntless is just play the well-meaningness of it in hopes that the audience likes you. A male Sarah Jessica Parker, if you will. And I think that Winifred is like such a sympathetic character and like such a great female role and everything that I was left feeling like she sort of deserved someone better than Dauntless. Like, I guess we're supposed to think that she just likes him because he's a prince or like mainly because he's a prince. But I feel like we should have a little more justification of like what it is that makes him interesting to her because he's not really like handsome. He's not funny. Like you can't really see why she likes him other than his royal status. Yeah. I mean, I guess just that he's nice and likes her is a big deal to her because we're sort of led to believe until that moment, Winifred never has had much male attention in that respect and has probably been prejudged for her demeanor and her looks for most of her life. So for someone to pay attention to her in a very genuine, heartfelt way is probably like, you know, just a very uh, meaningful moment to her. There, some things you can explain just in terms of pure chemistry, right? Or, or like having instant connection. So, um, uh, I've had to explain to people before <laughs> with, um, like, so with West Side Story, right? People are always like, I don't understand, like, what, how Maria and Tony fall for each other so quickly. I'm like, it's one of those things where you meet somebody and like the spark is just there. And when, and with the new movie, uh, with Rachel Zegler and Ansel Elgort, I I thought they actually made it even more explicit 
when people are like, well, now Maria is just so smart and, and, you know, sure of herself. What does she see in this bumbling Tony? And I'm like, he looks like a J crew model. He's nine <laughs> feet tall and he's a nice boy. I would fall for him too in five seconds flat. Um, but with Winifred and Dauntless, you're kind of right. Like there's nothing about him other than the fact that he's sweet that gives Winifred any reason to be interested in him and not just interested in him, but like willing to go through the stuff that she goes through to like deal with his mom and the test and all this stuff and like the 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 craziness of the castle and all the people who are just sort of bonkers there uh she's got to have a reason to stay dauntless is the reason and it's never really earned it was we just sort of have to take it at face value and once again with a show like this that's sort of you know the point everything has to be taken at face value i just yeah i agree with you i think that it's always it's nice to have just like a show go a little bit extra other than just whatever it's fun don't don't worry about it whatever forget about it don't worry about it and like i talked about this in the mama mia episode in the sixth episode when a when a stupid show is smart and does the work for you you can enjoy it all the more and there's a lot of intelligence in once upon a mattress but there's there are occasional rough spots where they're just sort of like don't worry about it shut up and right. it's like, no, I'm not going to shut up. I would like you to do the work, please. You, you know, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be the professionals here. Make this show in a way that I don't ever have to question it, that I can just ride the wave of entertainment bliss. Yeah, definitely. I I see what you mean there. There actually is, I think there's one point where at least Tracy Allman says, I think like it's a loony bin or something because she's supposed to be English. But I think it might be a different word that Carol Burnett uses and she almost runs out. I think she says it's a, it's a madhouse or something. Yeah. Madhouse because of all the like bullying and then they have to bring her back. Yeah, because she, after shy and all the queen can say is you swim the moat and Domus can't speak words. And, uh, um, and then like the wizard comes up and he's like here's your horoscope and she's like this a madhouse and <laughs> it's all yeah so she's like she's ready to bolt and then Dolmas is the one who gets her to stay and simply just him saying I like you and that's sort of enough for her and yeah so I mean I don't know. it's not that but that kind of goes back to what we were saying about the female roles in this and how Winifred despite the fact that she's a fun role I wouldn't I would not necessarily argue that she's like the strong female lead that people remember her as being. She is sure of herself and she is very, uh, you know, shameless is the wrong word, but as you said, like unassuming, you know, right. That's sort again, very fish out of water element of the show. She's not so bold as to like always speak her mind. She's not so strong as to not, crumble a little bit at the genuine intention from a man there there are human things about her that i can relate to if not necessarily making her that the most independent of people uh yeah i don't know i feel like i'm talking myself in circles but like in that it's oh no it's something about her that definitely feels human it's not something about her that i would argue makes her the like strong independent female lead that the show would have you believe or or people would remember her as being that's where I'll, that's where i'll end that statement <laughs> um that said she does have some of the best songs in the show there are other despite yeah. the fact that larkin and harry's storyline is one i couldn't care less about 
I prefer their songs to some of the other secondary songs. Like I don't like very soft shoes. I'm like, oh, I, I do like that. <laughs> you like you like very soft shoes? Yeah, I find that I find it fun. See, I and hear it, and I just go snip snip. Yeah, I know <laughs> everyone has different songs like that from from various shows. Yeah, uh, what are I guess? Well, in a little while is your big snip snip song. I know that. Yeah, um, for the yeah i do i i do like the play on the you and i will be one two three four uh because it, it you make you makes it sound like the line is you and i will be one but it's like no, no no we're gonna be one two and then he points to the belly three four uh assuming that they're having twins that's very presumptuous of harry and uh larkin has a really funny not funny but a very clever lyric uh Something about like her, how she's gonna like be showing maternally or something like that, like maternally, eternally, something like that. Some some rhyme like that, which I, every time I hear it, I go, "That's a very clever lyric." Oh yeah, and I think the lyric at the end of "Shy" is clever when they say like she's one man shy. I, I wasn't expecting them to use it in that way too. Yeah, it's a nice play on words. Yeah, it's it's what's interesting is "Shy" is well, I guess in a way it's a little bit of an "I want" song because it starts as an "I am" song. And then the second half is just, is it's more about her want. She says, this is who I am. And then it goes into, I'm going fishing for a mate. And I like <laughs> that they keep the the water element, the swimming element for her, since she comes from the marshlands. Uh, where it, the only, only the poor folk have dry land. The nobility all live right in the swamp. Uh, yeah, one man shy. What, so... Beyond the fact that you think Larkin and Harry should go bye bye, was it beyond the fact that you think that the Dauntless Winifred connection is a little uh, weak? And I agree with you on both of those fronts. Is there anything else surgery wise you would do with this show if you had your druthers? That's that's a good question. Is there anything else surgery wise? I don't know. I I really like a lot of the rest of, it, including some things we haven't talked about as much yet, like the man to man talk song. I think no, it's- okay. put, put a pin in that. Let's talk about that song in a second. Oh, yeah. And pretty much every moment with the father and the miming, I think, is done really well, especially when Jack Guilford Jack Guilford does it because he's a comedian that I love. And yeah, so and he's really great in this part and, and for it. Um, is there anything else that should be cut? I think maybe the sequence where she is like physically rolling and tossing around on the bed could stand to be a little bit shorter not a lot shorter it did remind me a little bit of the like eating scene in hello dolly and that you sort Mm. of feel like it could go on forever if she wanted it to but that maybe she's having like a little too much fun with it (laughs) to keep it going for so long that's absolutely fair it's very much dependent on the actress and how the audience is feeling because like I'm sure with uh, with Carol Burnett in live in the theater with her comic genius and whatnot, it's just, you know, you're sitting there going, more, please, I- inject it into my veins, please. And with Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, again, not much of a clown. You're sitting there going right. like, oh, okay, we get it. Wrap it up. You, you can only yeah. you can only play this bit for so long. Uh, yeah, that's definitely something you figure out in the rehearsal room and then you time to audience reaction for sure. Uh, I also think, I mean, I don't know. I think there could have been a slightly, I mean, it, that, this show wraps things up quicker than a speeding bullet. 
<laughs> it's like for how long we spend dragging out the Harry Larkin melodrama talking about the minstrel and his or the jester jester which one is it the jester or the minstrel and his like father in the dance and shoes the jester i think yeah the the jester they were like not dragging it out but a lot of references to like your father back on the day and it's like <laughs> i don't need another character and then we and then we get to the end and when donless finally stands up to his mother the the curse was that the king could not speak until the mouse devoured the hawk and no one really knew what that meant everyone took it literally apparently they tried to get a large mouse and a tiny hawk the hawk flew away and the mouse bit daddy uh or it's the other way around the mouse ran away and the hawk bit daddy something like that and eventually dauntless stands up to his mother the mouse devours the hawk and that's what creates the curse to be broken she becomes silent the king starts to speak again and within 90 seconds Donless and Winifred get married. We are shown that it wasn't the pee, it was the armor. And Winifred goes gets to go to sleep finally, and they take the pee out. And the king and the queen have a new, you know, marriage balance. Larkin and Harry get to get married. And we're like, it, it's just very, very fast. And I don't mind that necessarily, but it is like kind of it's like walking on a treadmill at two miles per hour, and then all of a sudden we're going at eight. Just like for a short period, for like a 90 second sprint. And you're like, oh, okay, we're done. Just even though, as you said, like the very final moments are very satisfying. But it like story-wise, we are like, oh, okay, we're we're we are there now. We are at the end. It's there's no more, we are, we are glossing over absolutely everything else. Fantastic. All right, here we go. And everything that we, you and I are talking about with this show, I think is part of the reason why we haven't had another Broadway revival, because despite how fun it is, despite the showcase it can be for a lot of great talent, it is a show that overall works, but is not overall exceptional. It's like always, it's often very pleasant. Sometimes it's very pleasant, but you're never like guffawing from the brilliance of the humor. You're never blown away by the inventiveness of the score. You're always like, that was nice. That was nice. <laughs> I do wonder if maybe someone would want to revive it. Uh, sorry, not revive it. Revise it is what I meant. Mm. Like maybe someone who I'm trying to think of like who writes the books for like the Disney shows and stuff. The like, books for the Disney shows? Like on Broadway? Aladdin and Lion King. Like who who, who are the book writers for those? Um, A corporation. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they have a few people. Chad Bugwellen, I know, did Aladdin uh lion king was a couple of people linda wolverton i think it contributed to that as well linda wolverton also did the book for beauty and the beast and she was one of the four book writers for aida newsies was harvey firestein i would i i, I am not a fan of his funny girl updates but i would definitely be down to see Fi- harvey firestein take a crack at maybe streamlining once upon a mattress and punching up a couple of the jokes yeah make it a sensible hundred minute musical He'd be a fun Queen Agravain too. Oh yeah, he'd be a lot of fun. I would I would be down for his Agravain. He hasn't been in Dragon a minute. Uh, yeah. I mean, Charles Bush. I would see Charles Bush's Agravain. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, just, I, mean <laughs> I, I mean Charles Bush. I want to see Charles Bush play every role <laughs> for a from a woman of a certain age. Just no matter no matter what the context, I just want to see it. Right. Right. 
Charles Bush's Joanne and Company, Charles Bush's Kimberly Akimbo, like Skippy, <laughs> all of them, all of them. He deserves it. He he should play every single one of the Grand Dames. Um, so let's talk about Man to Man. Yes. Set the scene. P- picture it. It's the it's the castle. It's Dalmas and his father. What's going on? What's happening? Yes. So I can't remember if it's the jester or the wizard, but one of them urges the king to have a talk with Dauntless because they think he's about to get married and to sort of give him the talk as it were before that happens and mm-hmm. so of course the father is the king is still under this curse where he can't speak so he has to pantomime the whole thing so the entire song is sung by Dauntless guessing what his father is trying to do with the hand motions mm-hmm. with the setting of the male bird and female bird and all of that stereotypical stuff so it's a really fun song in that I think that is one of the most inventive moments in in the show. It is a really wonderful moment. It's very funny. It's very, and it's also very touching because it is, yeah. it is one of the few times that uh, Dolan's and his father are alone on stage. And despite everything in that family, like, you know, uh, the king and queen do not like each other. Dolan's has a very toxic relationship with his mother. It is very clear that Dolan's and his father get along despite, you know, the language barrier. So it's nice to see that human connection and in a way that a lot of people can relate to. And yeah, it's just a really wonderful moment. Mary Rogers talks about this a lot, how um, the year that it was on Broadway in the, in 59 to 1960, the, a lot of their queer male contemporaries who would come see the show would like come up to them afterwards crying about that song because they just thought it was oh. such a touching moment. And like, I wish I had something like that with my dad. And uh, they all the writers were like, oh, we thought it was just funny. We didn't realize <laughs> we wrote something that was going to move people. And it, I mean, it is it is mostly funny, but it is it is touching in that same way. I do love that Dalmas just keeps not getting it. So the father just gives up and says it's whatever. It's the stork. And weirdly in giving up, Dauntless is then able to connect all the dots in the end. Similar to the structure of the musical, uh, you know, it's a very drawn out situation where we're like, okay, how long can we play this? How long can we play this? Oh, it it all gets resolved in the last 25 seconds. Golden. Uh, <laughs> but it, I would argue it works very well in, in Man to Man. And then they use the chorus of that for the end of the show. The ba 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 all life is grand. It's very interesting. Da, 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 da. It's it's really nice. I like it. I like when the, I like when shows repeat songs uh or, <laughs> or motifs for a new dramatic effect and I'm like, "Oh, see how things can can work differently with a different context. It's all about perspective." No, wait a minute, papa. Flower, seed, man, woman, bee baby small it isn't the stork it isn't the stork it isn't the stork at all oh life is grand it's very interesting i think i understand i think i think i know it's very interesting thank you father and father i love you so yeah, it, it is definitely a touching moment in the show. I remember being actually especially touched by it, seeing it live as opposed to the screen recordings, but it, it definitely works there too. Um, one thing I was going to say back to the point of like maybe a revision or something is that mm-hmm. I think that there's no need for it not to be like a 90 minute one act show, especially because as you said, everything gets resolved so quickly. It almost makes sense for there not to be a break in the middle. Mm-hmm. 
And I actually read the, I read the Wikipedia actually to get the best sense of when it sort of breaks in the middle of the action. And I do feel like most of the plot happens in the first act, even when, and the second act is basically just her doing this final test. But I think that it works well the way they compressed it for the 60s version. I think, because the show as written is pretty much exactly two hours. And there are some musicals that are two hours with no intermission, like a chorus line. Uh, if you if we were to cut Normandy, if we were to cut out about a minute and a half of the bit on the mattress, which still leaves us with a sensible 35 minutes on that mattress. <laughs> um, I know you like it. I think if we were to cut Very Soft Shoes, if we were to cut... Because I think we should... I think we can keep in a little while. I think... Having Normandy and a little in a little while are two songs that are it's like one of them's got to go. And I think in a little while, we probably should have just to sort of like establish that Larkin and Harry, our characters were going to be following, unfortunately, but cut Normandy, cut like a couple of the bits. You know, I don't think we necessarily need the uh, the Larkin Winifred. Oh, you're a scullery made bit to go on for quite so long. Uh, yeah, just like little trims here and there and then and then punch up a couple of the jokes. We can definitely get this down to like an hour and 40, no intermission, maybe even yeah. a little shorter with the right timing. And it's, yeah, I think that would make it feel still like a full evening. I think when you try to make something, when you try to drag something out, it can feel lighter and more padded and and less interesting as opposed to a tighter, richer, shorter piece, you know? I also think they could shorten the swamps of home song which i do like but i do sort of feel like it's one joke for for the whole song which i think it could be more like a minute and a half song rather than like a three minute song (laughs) Uh, yes absolutely swamps of home is definitely a song we were like in theory i should like this in practice (laughs) i'm just sort of tolerating it uh Yeah. yeah i mean that's also like the thing about normandy is normandy is actually a pleasant song to listen to i do just sort of sit there and go we've got plot to get to can we like cut this bit like she was gonna run away she's not gonna do it anymore okay great we get it like moving on like it's it's such a non-issue it's it's lurking be coming out being like i'm pissed off at harry i might run away and like great so let's convince you not to run away through <laughs> song and then you go back in the castle it's like nothing happened <laughs> right it's like, we were going to have an issue, but we resolved it before it became an issue. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, it's, there's um, a TV show called Happy Endings, which 
plays up on a lot of the tropes of sitcoms. And one of the things they do is when a character starts dating somebody who's not a part of like the friend group, she goes to meet his friends and uh, the one of the friends is like, and at the end, after all of it was over, we realized it was just a simple misunderstanding and we communicated and it was fine. And she was like, excuse me, like there was no mistaken identities or someone did something to prove a point. Like, she's like, what do you mean? And it's because in happy endings, happy endings is like every other sitcom, like friends or will and grace where there's a misunderstanding. And instead of someone being like, I think I misunderstood you. Could you repeat that more clearly? Right. Just, yeah. It's all craziness. And that's sort of, once on, upon a mattress has it both ways where there are sometimes misunderstandings that go on for a little too long and then misunderstandings that get resolved pretty much immediately <laughs> and usually the ones that are immediate are again when a woman's like i have an issue with this and the men are like but should you have one you're a woman <laughs> right uh yeah sometimes it's hard to tell exactly where the show's motives lie but yeah although it was it was one of the first shows composed by women as as they talk about in shy a lot yep Shy is an interesting book because of she doesn't come across as like a great human being <laughs> in many aspects of like relationships, career. She definitely seems like she would have been hard to work with as like a collaborator. And also I do <laughs> I sort of hesitate to say this because I don't want to like invalidate anyone's experience or anything, but I They're do all think... dead now, Charles. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. But I do think she comes across as a little bit too, like, ungrateful towards her parents. Like, when she says the big stuff but not the small stuff, some of the stuff is, like, really important. Like, the thing where her husband and her were about to, like, go bankrupt if Richard Rogers hadn't written written them a check so that they could, like, go on not being homeless, essentially. So I feel like she sort of overlooks a lot of that too much. Um, I mean, granted, I'm only halfway through the book, but I think... It's a it's a tricky situation when two people who are who supposedly are meant to love you unconditionally and prove otherwise it can right. it can be a little challenging and I think it took time for her to recognize that the big stuff was very important and you know and, and when it really mattered her parents did come through but I think, you know, there's always going to be a little resentment of, you know, especially with her formative years, that they weren't really there. And in fact, <laughs> were often damaging. But you know, I think there's Mary Rogers' life is fascinating. And I highly recommend everybody read Shy if you haven't yet. Because oh, yeah, she, she saw everything. She knew everyone. She experienced so much. She did so much. And she's very down on herself and her accomplishments like she always kind of thought that what she mostly was was very smart and that she was pretty good at a lot of things but not really great at anything and i and part of me is like that's fair because you look at her all the things that she did because she did so many different careers and she did a good job with all of them but she never really made like a major mark in the way that you know her father did or sondheim did but she still made a mark ironically her biggest achievement that has lasted the longest of, of her any of her legacies is freaky friday the whole like body swapping right you know storyline but i mean she was she was a talented writer in many respects and she was a good i think she i think her collaborative skills were probably frustrating because she has even said herself like she was not an endless well of talent her ideas came from just constantly coming back 
and trying again and trying again. So whereas she might work with like a Stephen Sondheim on a song and he's like, oh no, here's a lyric for you. She's like, okay, I'll come back to you in two weeks with the music. And Sondheim's probably like, what do you mean? Like <laughs> He's like, you should have the music in two days, despite that he was like a major procrastinator himself. And then her father's like, you should have the song in an hour. Like it's... <laughs> It, it she just sort of i think she understood the limitations of her talents and looking back even though she made peace with a lot of it there's definitely still some demons there uh yeah, yeah. and then uh, she's really hardest on arthur lawrence as well she should be mm-hmm. that man was not a good person and i think he was a little high and mighty for someone who really only had two really like impenetrable achievements which is the book for gypsy and the book for west side story <laughs> Um, and I mean, people come for the book for West Side Story, but I think that book is very strong. I I think I talked about this in maybe it was the Rent episode, Rent or Torchlong, I can't remember which. But Arthur Lawrence always blaming other people for the failure of his Broadway plays. I'm like, you wanna know what all those plays have in common, Arthur? You wrote all of them. <laughs> At some point, you gotta look in the mirror, babe, and go, it's me. I'm the problem. Right. As Taylor Swift, as Taylor Swift once wrote, "Hi, it's me. I'm the problem." It's me. <laughs> Are there any other songs we haven't really covered? I mean, I've, I've mentioned how much I really love the opening, and there's not much to say other than the fact that I think it's jazzy and fun with some cute lyrics. If you're going to listen to any version of it, I do recommend the revival. I think it's the most Broadway-y of them all. Uh, I really like Happily Ever After. I think that's a really great act two, I want song. And sort of an ultimate truth that many people don't want to say about, especially, I think, women, because with independence and uh with like you know the rise of feminism in the 60s and 70s and the women's movement you know the idea of domestic life and married life is considered a weakness for a lot of people because it's like no we've been trained to want this all our lives and it's not really what you want it's just what you've been programmed to want and i think that's true but it's also i mean it's true that we've been programmed to want monogamy and domesticity (laughs) but that doesn't stop the fact that at our core we do still want companionship uh just someone you know in your corner to share experiences with and i think it's really not brave it's not brave of Winifred, but i i like the idea of this sort of not like other girls girl to say an act two just like it's not like it's not a political statement i just want to be with somebody can i just like get with someone and what makes it not treacly is she's like do you know how hard it is out here for a single person uh you know to to want to find someone and not be able to find someone and then you find someone and his mother is this person and then you have to go through a test you don't know what that's gonna be and you don't have a fairy godmother it's really hard y'all yeah, definitely. And it's actually kind of a funny coincidence that I think is addressed in the book that Happily Ever After was also the name of that song in company that had to be cut and replaced with Being Alive, which takes a very different view of yeah. marriage and all that. Yeah. Well, and I think it uh it, it's interesting. Like, yeah, mar- the, the whole because the whole idea of marriage and company is originally anyway, was sort of like, it's all a sham, it's all a lie. And then they, Sondheim always talks about how they went for the cheap out with the end of company. And I think the problem with being alive is not the song itself or not even its message. I think its message is very true. It's just that the show doesn't 
lead up to it. Like we have yeah. 90% of a show that was written to end with happily ever after. And <laughs> they didn't really make enough changes to the rest of the show to justify being alive happening. Uh, so it feels sometimes can feel like out of left field, but yeah, being alive and happily ever after from once upon a mattress, very similar mentalities of like, it's hard out here. Sometimes you just want someone in your corner. <laughs> Because friends can only, you know, be around for so long. Family, you know, they, you don't, you can't choose your family as Mary right. Rogers learned. So even <laughs> if they technically love you, even if they're there for the big stuff, you're not always going to like your family. You want someone you love and you like who will just be there. And that's, yeah, it's, it's a really nice, uh, it's really nice thing to have if you can get it. And again, as, as I mentioned, we will discuss that more in depth with a significant other episode uh oh larkin and harry have another song that i completely forgot about that's so stupid yesterday i loved you i hate that song i think it's stupid it it, it is there there's not a lot of good material for them <laughs> they're, they're like we have the hot young people haven't been or haven't sung in a while let's give them another <laughs> song and it's another one joke song where you know they fight they get back together and larkin's basically like do you still love me and harry's like well yesterday i loved you but not as much as today. And like, that's the joke where it's like, oh no, he doesn't love her anymore. It's like, no, yesterday I loved you, but it doesn't compare to, to now. And it's like, okay, after the first verse, we get it. Uh, right. And there are, there are a few other songs that are sort of like that, that I think do better. Like, what am I trying, like you're timeless to me from Hairspray or mm-hmm. there's another one like that, that is in that exact same mold of like the, I think it's the man who keeps saying insulting things, but then sort of remedying them. Do you have any idea what it would be? Or he says insulting things, and then and then uh, fixes it. I don't know. I'm 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 more. I can think of more like one joke songs that start strong and then don't really end well. I mean, uh, the one that Sondheim always talks about, which I agree with him on in theory, although Donna Murphy really nailed it, is uh, "Hundred Easy Ways to Lose a Man," which is. You know, the song is funny for about the first two verses. And then after that, it's just about building to the big old f- end. And he said, like, he's never groaned harder in a theater than when Rosalind Russell, Rosalind Russell shouted 98 ways to go. And he's like, oh, God, we're going to be here for 98 verses. <laughs> it's it's fair. But yeah, it's 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 tr- I think it's trying to have fun with the not uh what's what's the term that we came up with with rogers and hammerstein where they came up with sort of like the conditional love song or something like that where it's not just yeah it's not just i love you but if i loved you people will say we're in love and so this is trying i think have fun with that in a more kind of smart alecky way of yeah well yesterday i loved you and i love you more now and it's cute for a second and then it just keeps like every hot person who's never been told that they're not funny. (laughs) This song is two hot people going, ah, we got them in the palm of our hands. It's like, no, sweetie, you lost us 90 seconds ago. (laughs) There may or may not be a Broadway ingenue who I saw in the last year in a role that is pretty funny. I wouldn't say it's the funniest role of all time, but like King Lansom laughs and watching it, watching this person play this role, I went, oh, you are so beautiful and you sing so beautifully. No one has ever sat you down and been like, you do not have comedic timing. I openly confess tonight I love you less 
than I will tomorrow Any other things about this show, Charles, that you would like to touch on? Um, I think we've touched on almost everything. I did have one more story because in preparing for this, one of the things I was doing was sort of going back through the list of people I'd talked to and trying to find anyone who was involved in this show in any way. So the other one other than Liza Gennaro I found was a guy named, his name was Bob Fitch or Robert Fitch. He was the rooster in the original Annie. And oh. he was also a dancer on the special, the 60s special, I think, Mm -hmm. rather than the 70s one. And he told this story about how there's that moment in Shy during the sort of dance break when Carol Burnett falls off of the top of the stairs. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the male dancers catch her? So apparently she was pregnant while filming it. And the director was like, well, well, you don't have to do this. I understand it's a safety thing. And she said, like, no, I insist on doing it. I want to do it. It makes everything better. But that it was very nervous fracking for all the male dancers who had to catch her because of course if they like didn't put their arms out at the right time something very bad could have happened to her and her baby absolutely luckily they didn't and and she and the baby are fine uh (laughs) yeah that is oh boy we love commitment carol but also sometimes you know really stopped doing the cartwheel in south pacific after like three months carol did not need to get jump off of a staircase uh that's a fun story. I mean, th- I'll say with the 90s production from the few people I've spoken to who are part of it, every- apparently everyone just assumed they were getting fired every day of rehearsal oh. all throughout previews. And then they actually did fire, I think their minstrel or no, their their jester. They fired their jester in the beginning of previews. And at that point, it was just so clear to everyone that nothing was right and that <laughs> if it was going to actually get fixed they would need to just sort of do a complete overhaul of everything it was like the director was wrong the the design was wrong because like the design was just too luscious and elaborate and and like kind of claustrophobic and overbearing and they were like they were the first or second week of previews and they and they fired the jester and everyone just kind of went like really that was the problem uh (laughs) it was you know putting on uh, putting a band-aid over 10 gunshot wounds and Yeah, just everyone was convinced, including Sarah Jessica. She also thought she was getting fired every day. And when it did finally close, it was just sort of like a sigh of relief for everyone. They're like, okay, I can I can move on from this now. And yeah. from what it feels like everyone did, because I know Jane Krakowski got asked about it once in an interview, and she kind of went, uh, okay. She's like, sure, let's talk about that for five seconds and then move on. <laughs> uh and that and that woman has been in some some things. So she, yeah. For, so for her to say that about once upon a mattress, it's like, oh, that must have really done a number on you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I would love to have a respectful sit down with Sarah Jessica about that show and just sort of discuss as an actor what you do when you recognize that you're in something that is beyond your capabilities and you can't really back out because the whole thing is sort of riding on you. Yeah. Sort of and- like Beanie Feldstein a little bit. I wasn't gonna go there, but <laughs> now that but now that we're there, the beanie of it all is similar to Sarah Jessica in the sense that two talented individuals who are who are just wrong for their parts in a way that nothing was gonna change that. And while it is partly on a performer when they do have agency, someone like Beanie and someone like Sarah Jessica Parker 
do have agency when it comes to accepting roles. Someone right. like, you know, working musical theater actress Jane Krakowski circa 1996 <laughs> does not have the agency to turn down Once Upon a Mattress when it's, you know, I think it's pre- right before Ali McBeal. So it's not like she's, it's not like she's like, oh my God, I've got TV money now. I yeah. can do what I want. It's like, no, it's, she's going from show to show. She's not going to turn this down. But someone like Sarah Jessica Parker or Beanie, you know, they have agency, but also it's up to the production staff to kind of look at what they have and and be honest about like whether they think that their leading lady can do it and or, or if they can do it to the extent that it'll work for the show. And for someone like, Sarah Jessica Parker, you part of you goes, well, this show is so fun. There's got to be a way in for me. And then, like, I, I don't know at what point you realize that it's you've just hit a wall and it's not going to get better. What do you do? Do you keep your head down? Do you just try to make it a pleasant experience for everybody? Do you continue to try, especially when you're getting no help from your director? <laughs> uh, one day, I will do a mini series on the funny girl of it all. <laughs> Because I have, I do have some, I have some contacts at that show, and they have made it clear that they will not say the full story until the show is done, because uh, they are still connected to it in various ways, and that's fine. Similar, similar to uh, the Once Upon a Mattress family, and like, and how Louis Cleal will now come out about Jerry Gutierrez because that man be dead. Uh, once Funny Girl is is dead, more stories will come out of the woodwork. So, Charles, we have a new game. You've listened to the first two episodes of this podcast. So I think, you know, the game is coming up now. Uh, it's called six degrees of Sally Murphy. And it is called <laughs> who lives, who dies Janine Tesori, which is just six degrees of Janine Tesori. Now there are some rules. We connect original productions of the shows we're talking about to either Sally Murphy or Janine, or Janine Tesori. You have the entire original company, no replacements, but you also have the entire production team as well. So that includes writer, wow. director, choreographer, set designer, as well as designers and directors of other connections. So for example, I'll give you, I'm going to give you my Sally Murphy connection. I, I figured it out while we were talking just now. Now that, now that I'm on BPN, we have uh, commercials and I keep on saying that I'm going to say in the episodes, I'm going to take a break. Like, like we got to take a break for the commercials and I keep forgetting to do it. So after this episode, <laughs> I'm going to start doing it. So I'm, I'm everyone. I'm holding myself accountable for the for the next episode. Um, that said, while we were just talking now, I have my my six degrees of Sally Murphy. This will give you an idea. Once upon a mattress starred Carol Burnett, who did the Broadway production of Putting It Together, which had a set design by Bob Crowley. Bob Crowley designed the set for the 1994 Carousel with Sally Murphy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's our six degrees of Sally Murphy. Now we got to find basically six degrees of Janine Desori. With the original Once Upon a Mattress. I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Um, I guess it would probably would make the most sense for it to be something earlier on, like maybe when she was still in the rain chair. When she was still in the rain chair? So, no, on, on a rain chair. Like when oh. that was still what she did for shows, like Secret Garden. Yeah, when, she, when, when Secret Garden, How to Succeed, Sound of Music. Um, okay, well, so, okay. Let's think. Well, I guess you can, or what you can't do rivals because I was going to say how to succeed Sarah Jessica Parker, but that violates the rules. Um, it do, it do. Um, okay, wait, wait. So we could do a performer again for the original Once Upon a Mattress, or we could do production staff. Would you, right. you, 
do you want to do like Mary Rogers, George Abbott, Jack Guilford, Carol Burnett again? Let's, let's let, yeah, you pick the launching off part. I feel like starting with Carol Burnett is the easiest because she came up to the most modern okay. era. Okay, okay. So, so we'll have Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett. She wrote the play Hollywood Arms. Right. With Michelle Park. Would that be a connection? Okay. Possibly. Possibly a connection. <laughs> so let me... It's okay. So we have Carol Burnett wrote Hollywood Arms with Michelle Park. That's that's connection number one. Michelle Park. Okay, okay, okay. Here we go. Michelle Park was in Susical with... Oh, uh, oh, 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 with Alice Playton. She was the mayor's wife. Alice Playton was the oh, original grandma in Carolina Change, which was written by Jenny Tesori. <laughs> Bing, bang, boom. There we go. <laughs> Bam. Oh, God. That that took me a second. I was like, because that could have gone a million ways. I was like, Kevin Chamberlain. What What is the connection there? Janine Lamana. What's our connection? Who, who, do we, who we got? Who we got? No, that's it. That's it. Perfect. 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 We love it very much. Um, Charles, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for joining today. Oh, yes, thank you. I've had so much fun. Anytime I'd be happy to do this. It was so much fun. So much fun. Now, you'll definitely come back. Uh, where If you want people to find you, where can they find you? Oh, you can find me um, on Instagram. I'm at Backstage Babble on Facebook as Charles Kirsch. And you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen. So, yeah. Uh, who was your most recent guest on Backstage Babble? My most recent guest was, oh, <laughs> now it's been a few weeks since I put one out. So can I say uh, the next one? Yes, yeah, so tell us who the next one is. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, the next one is going to be Mark Shaman. So I'm excited about that. Nice. It was a really fun conversation. Oh, pre-recorded. They're, they all are. So it was a really fun conversation, I think. That's, I, no, think that's people will- you, I will say, guys. If you like my podcast, I will, Charles Kirsch here has a lineup of guests that just makes you go, okay. You're like, okay, <laughs> child, calm down with knowing absolutely everybody and talking to everyone in this world. You, your, your roster is amazing. Uh, if, if you like this podcast, guys, you can rate, you can review, you can subscribe. We love a nice five-star rating. We have a new review. It's very short. Five stars. Cue the light of the Piazza Overture. Five stars. Smartest. I love it already. Matt is the smartest theater boy. And if you love Broadway, you will love him and this podcast with three exclamation points. Thank you very much, dear. We love that review. Concise, to the point. Uh, <laughs> if you want to follow me, I am on Instagram, at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. Uh, and that's really it. Uh, join us next week when we cover I Don't Know What, because this whole <laughs> thing is out of order. I have to consult my schedule. As you know, Charles, we close out every episode with the big Broadway diva. I am almost positive we have not done carol burnett so i'm thinking she would be a good one right to like connect to this show yeah i think either her or maybe jane grakowski so we can give lady larkin a little bit of love (laughs) uh i don't know carol burnett do we think the right one yeah let's say carol burnett okay maybe something from fade out fade in so guys you did not see just what happened just there (laughs) charles being charles was like okay I want everyone to remember, I'm the Golden Age Wunderkind. I know all the Golden Age musicals. I'm going to name the Julie Stein score that no one knows. 
the Carol Burnett vehicle that everyone's forgotten about, including Carol Burnett. So we'll do fade out, fade in, just to please my golden age wunderkind. Uh, <laughs> once again, Charles, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as Charles and I did. And that's it. Have a great week. Take us away, Carol. Bye. Go! Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.